Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm just so happy to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, it is possible. And, of course, following the show, you can continue this discussion on Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, we, we have pages, so please like those Facebook pages. Well, tonight's show is entitled, Rediscovering Your Kinship Village. How many of you have even thought of your genealogy as rediscovering your kinship village? Well, I just want to remind everyone that I have had two shows on strategies for using autosomal DNA with Shannon Christmas and C.C. Moore on October the 28th, 2013, and then June 27, 2012. So for those of you who are not as familiar with uh, DNA, a DNA discussion, you can certainly learn from these two individuals. Well, motivational speaker and genealogist Michael Williams will share his epic 17-year adoption search and reunion experience, plus his DNA breakthrough to rediscover his kinship village. As a motivational keynote speaker, Michael shares his journey to verify family lore through DNA testing. Now, his inspirational story empowers families to follow clues shared in oral histories. You know, I always say follow those clues. Family documents, of course, documents at the courthouse and other places, and then through DNA analysis. So I am very happy to welcome Michael Williams to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Michael. Hey, how you doing, Bernice? It's so good to be here, and it's so good to uh, be welcomed in the homes of the listening audience out there. You know, I could hear 
Maya Angelou say, I came bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and hope of the slave. I rise. I rise. I rise. And I rise tonight to share my experience in connecting with my biological family and then also going through the process of learning about my family history and incorporating the strategies involved in applying uh, DNA uh, testing strategies to make those connections tonight. All right. Well, why don't you start off, help us understand who are you and what do you do? I am a family educational consultant, and I'm the owner of Native Womb Advantage Consulting. And with that business initiative, what I do is I go into organizations and I conduct DNA testing presentations. But even more than that, I work specifically with adoption agencies that have post-adoption services, training staff members on how they could communicate the benefits of DNA testing to their families that they serve. And as a motivational speaker, I'm known for my keynote, my inspirational keynote, which is breaking barriers, reaching the impossible reach. And I can tell you that since I've launched a Native Womb Advantage Consulting, there's been a plethora of opportunities to really share my story because Native Womb Advantage Consulting came out of my award-winning memoir, Native Womb, going back to the beginning. And that chronicles my adoption, search, and reunion story. Well, why don't you continue to tell us about that? Because when did you discover that you had been adopted? Well, I discovered that I had been adopted at the age of 12. And it was on an awkward day because it was the day that I was on punishment. <laughs> and um, okay. I couldn't go outside. I couldn't go outside. But I had this, I had this, um, this habit of looking through the family photo album. I just love looking at the old photos and, and just really trying to, you know, ascertain, you know, how do I connect with this person? And I came across a document that revealed that I wasn't who I thought I was. Mm-hmm. And that was, invariably, that was my day of discovery as well. So it was the day that I was on punishment, couldn't go outside. But then it was also, ironically, the day that I discovered the truth of who I was. And how did that and, feel? You know, it, it, it felt awkward. <laughs> it felt awkward. It, uh, it was confusing. And I can remember earlier that year, my mother and I sat down and we watched the Roots miniseries because, you know, every year, uh, you know, in the United States, they will play, you know, the Roots miniseries for one whole week during Black History mm-hmm. Month in February. That's the only month that we get, y'all. But, mm-hmm. um, but that week they, they would show, um, oftentimes they would show uh, the Roots miniseries. And that year in particular, we watched it together. 
And I can remember feeling, wow, you know, Kunta Kente being separated from his homeland and, and not being able to, to, to go back and then to have to, you know, make it in America and then having his, you know, children separated and what have you. It really, it really awakened in me the sense that, wow, as a cultural people, we've suffered so much and we've lost so much. Mm-hmm. So when I re- when I came to the realization that I had been adopted, what became very apparent to me was that I had lost a connection, mm-hmm. and there was no way, at least at that point in time, for me to be able to to rekindle that connection because there were no answers. Now, did the feelings toward your adoptive family change when you found out you were you were adopted? No, it didn't change. It just, at that age, it just, you know, really aroused a sense of curiosity as, okay, well, if I wasn't, if this is not my family of origin, well, then where did I come from? And the only thing, only thing that, only answer that I received was, you were brought to us from Angel Guardian Foster Home. Mm -hmm. That was it. That was, that was it. it. That was the that was the sole basis of where I came from, and it wasn't until, you know, I began to I got older and I was ready to transition into into manhood that I really uh, embraced the idea of really uh, finding out who I really was, and that was at the age of eighteen. And then what happened at eighteen? Well, I did the unthinkable. Sometimes, you know, when you're trying to to really uh, seek a, a breakthrough, you've got to be willing to take chances. You've got to be willing to do the unthinkable. And I did that. And I, I used a $5 calling card. And ladies and gentlemen, you know, this, this $5 calling card has allowed me to do what I do now because with that calling card, I was able to take the four pieces of information that I knew going into this search, and that was I knew that my biological surname, I knew what that was. I also knew the agency, of course, Angel Guardian Foster Home. I also heard that I had a sibling that was 13 years older than me. Actually, it was a sister who was 13 years older than me. And, of course, New York was where, that's where I'm from. So with those four pieces of information, I used the $5 calling card and employed the help of the directory assistance. And what I did was, it was pretty bold, I said, listen, I, give me as many numbers as you possibly can give me under the last name Hearth. Because Hearth was my original last name. Okay. I was born Michael Raymond Hearth. I came into this world born as Michael Raymond Hearth, and I, not knowing whether or not it was it was uh, I inherited that name from my mother or my father, that's all I could get the operator. Mm-hmm. And with persistence, I was able to accumulate about forty numbers. Because what I did was I kept calling in. I would call in the first go round, and, and they'd give me a couple numbers. I wait a few moments and I call again. Now I only had 20 minutes left on this calling card, so I had 20 minutes to get a breakthrough. 
20 okay. minutes. Okay. And within 20 minutes, I called every last number on that list, and the last number is always the last one in the pile, isn't it? But that last yes, it number. Yes, Oh, you're giving me chills. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. The last number was it. And let me tell you, let me tell you there may be someone who tuned in tonight and I just caught this story, and I want to just encourage someone that, you know, if you would just believe, you know, the impossible reach can be made possible. You just got to take that chance. And as I dialed that last number, I was, uh, you know, the sabotager was then was like, well, this ain't going to work. The other 39 numbers didn't work. Well, what makes you think this 40th number is going to make the difference? Okay. But I called it anyway. And the other, the, the soft-spoken voice on the other end of the receiver said, hello. And I had a spiel. I said, well, you know, my name is Michael Raymond Hart, and I'm looking for my family. And did you know of a child who was born, you know, on November 1978? And she said, can you repeat your name one more time? And I said, Michael Raymond Hart. And it got silent. And that scared me. It actually scared me <laughs> because I'm like, wait a minute, I finally got someone on the phone because all the other 39 uh, numbers that I called was either answer machines or if it, if it was someone, someone who picked up, it was intuitively I knew that they were of a different ethnic group. So I just said, well, let me just keep calling. But this one, was it was different. It was She was locked in, and I felt that. From from being on the opposite end of the the receiver, I could feel that, and I could feel her starting to become emotional, but yet contained. And uh-huh. as soon as I repeated my name, she said, "Mickey, Mickey, Mickey." I'm like, "Who's Mickey?" I'm like, "Who's Mickey?" And to myself, I'm saying, "Who's Mickey?" I know Mickey Mouse, but I, I don't know, like, no one ever called me <laughs> Mickey before, you know. And she said, no, we used to call you Mickey when you were born because you were so tiny. She says, if memory serves me correctly, weren't you the child that was placed in Angel Guardian foster home? I said, how do you know that? I said, nobody knows that unless I volunteer the information or their family. She said, yes. I'm your first cousin, and your mother is my aunt, and her name was Joanne Hart. So right there, ladies and gentlemen, I was able to – is that something? Is that something? Yes. Oh, no. Right then and there was the start of an adventure of a lifetime. Because, see, some of you need to understand that as an adoptee in the United States, legally, legally, I had no right to my original birth record. There was no applying to vital statistics to get a copy. It was sealed, shut, shut closed in a vault that would never be open again because the nature of my adoption was a closed adoption. And those type of adoptions in this country uh, does not warrant or does not merit 
any type of access whatsoever to more yes. than 6 million adoptees in this country today, according to the American Adoption Congress. So I want you to understand the significance of this miracle on the phone with this cousin who knew the agency that I was placed in. This is a miracle. This is truly a And how long ago was this, Michael? This was 18, 18 years ago. I'm now 35, so I would say 17 years ago. I was just about to turn uh, 18. It was five days before my birthday, but it was the day before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving Eve was when this miracle occurred, and that Christmas I met the family in person, mother included. Well, tell us about this this experience with your your birth mother. How was that initial reunion? That reunion was life changing for me because in my mind I fantasized what she would look like. I fantasized what she would sound like, and when I came into her presence, it was nothing like what I imagined. Because, see, when I reentered into the family, my mother had suffered a long battle with a mental illness. And although she was medicated, there was a lot that she was not able to do simply because the medications had slowed her down so much. This was a woman who was a professional woman. This was a woman who was a a forward-thinking, very progressive. But, and we don't talk about this in in, in the black families, you know, mental illness. But Mm -hmm. she she had a long battle with that. So I witnessed um, that disability, but I also witnessed a sense of dignity about her. This was a woman who was the oldest of her siblings and Mm -hmm. was used to bringing things together and holding things down. But in as much as she possibly could, she was, was poised. She still had that sense of dignity, and it was like she had a, a presence about her that commanded respect. Yeah. And I, I felt like I just wanted to sit down and put my thumb in my mouth and say, Mommy, you know what I mean? I really felt like that because it was just like, wow. But I'll never forget those eyes. Uh-huh. I'll never forget those eyes. There was something about her eyes. She had a fire in her eyes mm-hmm. that I call them wisdom eyes. And people who knew her before she got sick said that she was the type of person that could see beyond a person. And mm-hmm. I think they call people with those, that kind of a gift, uh, gift of discerning, discernment. Um, she could know what was in a person's heart before they even said it. But she would address those things in such a loving way. And even as she looked at me, she was trying to, calculate and figure out, okay, how do I know you? I know you're familiar, but how do I know you? That was the illness blocking yes. her, her memory. Mm-hmm. But then my sister, my sister stepped in and said, Mom, this is Michael. Because, see, my mother 
immediately went into this story. Oh, I remember, you know, uh, being with my two children at the apartment and Michael. Oh, I lost Michael, and, and no one could tell me what happened oh. to him. And, 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 and we had the apartment, and it was out on Far Rockaway, Queens, and, you know, it, it was a beautiful area which, where we lived at the time. And she actually worked for the Department of Social Services as a, as a court stenographer. Today we would call them a court stenographer, but back then she was um, a dictaphone typist, very skilled in typing shorthand. So that was the kind of work that she did, and it afforded her, you know, the ability to have a nice place out on the beach with her two children. Mm-hmm. And her mind immediately went back to that memory, and I can remember the whole room just got silent because when I stepped into the dining room, I mean, it was just you know Christmas music going. I think it was like maybe Luther Vandross Christmas special or something, and you know, but it was just a warm atmosphere and and the food and the smell of ham and turkey and stuffing and. All of that, and the kids running around playing and just acting a fool, and you know, just having a good time, and and then all of a sudden she 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 stands up and she just goes into this monologue about the apartment and the two children and what happened to my Michael, and then Tanya says, "But Ma, this is him. He's all growing up now." And she looked at me with those fire in her eyes, uh-huh. and she said, yes, you are my son. You are my son. Oh, wow, Michael. How did you feel? I mean, what was going on in, in your mind, in your heart? My mind was blown. My heart was was, was pounding out of almost out of my chest because I'm like, OMG, this is not happening. This is a dream. I'm going to, somebody's going to pinch me and I'm going to wake up and none of this ever happened. But I pinched myself more than once and she was still there. And one of the things I so appreciated about that moment was that I never felt like I had been away. Mm. The sense of camaraderie, the 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 sense of love and genuine concern really made me feel as though I had always grown up with around them. I was looking mm-hmm. at folks who looked like me and, and and behave, you know, had certain mannerisms, you know, uh like me and and I was looking at my mother, you know, whose name is Joanne Hart, and I began to look at her and I could see myself. It was like I was looking, it was like a, I was looking at a mirror of my mm-hmm. own self when I saw her. And it was almost as if, you know, the mirror that she embodied in my mind was the mirror uh, of my ancestry. It was all there, all there all there, and it would be in time, in time, I would get my chance to sit down with the elders and to really learn the history. So take us to the next level. So you've had this initial reunion experience. 
What kind of challenges did you face in trying to learn about your family history? One of the greatest challenges was that my mother could not remember. And although she mm-hmm. wasn't the only resource, um, there was an aunt uh, who, uh, who was alive, and her memory wasn't all that well. She was dealing with her own medical challenges. And I'm like, well, gee whiz, just my luck, you know, just when I'm ready, you know, after about three three years or so, you know, folks getting comfortable and, and you know, I'm invited to events and what have you. And um, and I would, I would hear certain things and I would jot it down, but the challenge was I didn't understand how it all connected. Yes. And, you know, just, just you know, like most families, you know, you, you get a, a little piece here, an outpouring there, and you just have to somehow figure out a way to stitch it together. Well, the best thing is to sit down with your elders. But a lot mm-hmm. of the elders did not live in New York, the ones who really knew the history and could tell it like it was. Mm-hmm. Those elders, I had to, I learned about those elders actually after my mother had passed away. That's when okay. I learned about um, those elders. And that helped me step over those challenges because the, the biggest one, like I said before, is that people just could not remember or they had a little piece here, a little piece there, and it was just too fragmented. I, I didn't, I, it, nothing made sense to me. All mm-hmm. I could do was just keep it all in mind, just, just kind of put it on the shelf mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. I got my chance to sit down with an elder. And then how long was it uh, before you had that opportunity to sit down with an elder? Can you believe that it took me approximately seven, no, I would say six years, six years from the time that I reentered the family to the time that I began to start learning the family history. It took me six years. And for those of you tuning in who who have an experience of, of, of adoption and you are at a point where you're trying to uh, make that decide whether or not you want to make that step to search. It's going to take time. Granted, if you had that chance to reconnect, it's going to take time for you to get to the point where folks are comfortable enough to start opening up the family books. Because mm-hmm. after the novelty wears off, you've got to really learn them and they they need a chance to to be able to learn you. So it mm-hmm. is a seesaw seesaw relationship. Okay, yeah. when you move, I move. Okay, when you step back, I step back. You know, and it's that kind uh-huh. of a thing. And right. um and so after six years into it, I met my first elder and his name uh was Sam Kirkland. Okay. Sam Kirkland was my my maternal grandfather's first cousin. Okay. And it was through Sam Kirkland. And it's interesting how I connected with Sam because through Ancestry.com, this is during my days in undergrad, they, their security um, their security walls was a lot lax than what they are now because at one mm-hmm. time, do you remember how Ancestry used to have a thing where a directory where you can actually call people? Do you remember that? No, I don't remember. I don't think I called people through Ancestry. 
Listen, listen, I didn't play. I didn't play. It worked for me the first time. I said, I'm going to try it again. I, okay. you know, I, had, I, had heard, I had heard, and I'm not recommending that you know, folks use the phone because that really, uh, it, it can go one of, it can go so many different ways. But really, you know, for those of you who are adopted looking to reconnect, using a, a mutual consent registry is really the preferred way to do things. I just happened to take a non-conventional way, and it was meant to be. Yes, but, I think it was the way the way yeah. it uh, occurred. Yes, indeed. But yeah, Michael, the way it, I need to stop yeah. you for one second. We're going to take a break. Come back because you have a whole lot more to tell us. But we yes. we kind of know where you are right now. I mean, you have reconnected with the family, and so we're yes. going to continue this discussion because I know there's a lot more to come. Quick break. Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time while I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. Now, all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. You can also find the archive shows on my website, genieberoots.com. So we have been listening to motivational speaker and genealogist Michael Williams. And so, Michael, we need you to come on back and start telling us more about your quest to learn about your birth family's history. Great. Well, I am here, and for those of you just tuning in, um, I want you to know that um, I could be found at mynativewomb.com. And my story, uh, there's an excerpt of my book, Native Womb, going back to the beginning. And, again, that website is www.mynativewomb.com. As in Mary, D as in boy, dot com. There's an excerpt of the book, Native Womb, there, and you would be able to own your copy of the amazing award-winning story. Now, okay, well, get I us saw, back into this story because <laughs> we, we yes, want to yes, hear. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I found Sam Kirkland. I found Sam Kirkland. And Sam Kirkland was the first elder, the first elder 
that I was able to connect with. And he uh, turned out to be my maternal grandfather's first cousin. And he connected me with other first cousins of my uh, grandfather. And I began to learn about how the Baker family line came to be because I, I started to understand on my maternal grandfather's side, that's where my, my original last name came from because his name was McQueen Hart. Okay. And, of course, he was, he was the son of McQueen Hart Sr. and Minnie Baker. So when I contacted Cousin Sam, his mother was a baker and turned out to be my maternal great-grandmother's sister. Okay. So, so it really took off from there. So between Cousin Sam and Cousin Gandhi, who lived uh, in the tri-state area at the time, he, he just uh, passed away earlier this year at the age of 95, if I'm not mistaken. And what a what a wonderful person. But he was able to tell me about the connections to Nisi, South Carolina, which is in Orangeburg County. And okay. once they laid the groundwork as far as how the connections came together in Nisi's, my next task was to find a way to get down there. But somewhere along the way, I came across... DNA testing, and that allowed me to verify a lot of what I had learned regarding um, my connection to the Bakers, and then also uh, an offshoot, which was the Phillips, and that was a very interesting um, story because in finding out how the Bakers um, inherited that particular line, I found out that my great great-grandfather, when he was born, he actually was born to a slave mother, and his father was a white plantation owner. And this, this white father, my great-great-grandfather, um, his last name was Phillips, and my great-great-grandfather's mother was a baker. And although she had passed giving birth to him, her request was that when she passes that he uh, carry her name, and that's how the Baker name came uh, passed down. Okay. Now, let me just uh, help get a good understanding of your paper trail and what part of what you're telling me is part of your paper trail and what part is oral history? So, well, as you said, family lore. <laughs> okay. Well, with, with family lore, um, Cousin Gandhi and Sam explained the connection to Nisi's through the Baker Phillips line. Okay. Okay. The Baker Phillips line. And, and this is your oral so we, history. Mm-hmm. That's the oral history. Now, I transitioned to using the paper trail by going to the census. I, I looked at the 1880s federal census. I also looked at the 1910 and the 1920 federal census. And I was able to 
make the connections that um, Mildas had uh, was trying to pass down to because they were telling me about the house that we had in uh, South Carolina. And this particular house symbolically represents four distinct family lines that originated from that house. But that house really was the centerpiece of the Baker family history because my great-great-grandfather, William Baker, was my pre-Civil War ancestor, born in 1862. And he was the product of a slave owner with the, by the last name Phillips and a mother who had the last name Baker. And my great-great-grandfather was born on the Phillips plantation. Okay. And that part of the, uh, part of the family lore became extremely invaluable when the DNA testing came on the scene because okay. that really solidified that connection to the Phillips. So tell us how it solidified your connection. And you also mentioned a house. And it, yes. so is the house that you just mentioned the house where your great-great-grandfather's family lived? That house is, that house that I spoke of, that house was built by my great-great-grandfather with his own hands in 1880. And it turns out, according to the census and family lore, that he was a farmer. Now, in now in 18... Well, excuse me, in 1880, uh, it shows that he was the owner of that house, and okay. he did not have, he owned it free and clear, so there was no mortgage. And it okay. also showed that he was a farmer, and he was, it had the initials EM, which signifies employer. So okay. he So he ran that operation, and on that farm, he gave birth to my great, well, he fathered my great-grandmother, who was mm-hmm. a baker. Okay? okay? Now, going beyond that house, now we're starting to uh, tap into uh, the, um, the, the slave era, and that's where we find Grandpa Baker having been born on the Phillips Plantation, which was not far from where he built his house. Gotcha. It was just okay. in the next time over. Yes. All right. Okay. I'm following you now. So why was it important for you to pursue DNA testing to discover the truth of your uh, pre-Civil War ancestry? Well, because with pre-Civil War ancestry, eventually the paper trail runs out. So what's the next best thing? The next best thing is to rely on the the best source of finding out who you are, and that is your DNA. And with companies like 23andMe, Ancestry, DNA, uh, Family Tree DNA, DNA Tribes, African Ancestry Inc., all of these are excellent companies that provide us with the tools to gain clues as we look at the ancestral portrait of those who had something to do with our genes. And that's why I sought the help 
of DNA. And my first entry into the world of uh, genetic genealogy was through 23andMe. They had a program called Roots into the Future. And that program was chaired by Dr. Rick Kittles, and it was also co-chaired by uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr., and through that program, I learned so much. It was, it's amazing what DNA can reveal because you think you know who you are, but mm-hmm. DNA really just, it, it really provides a whole other dimension of identity. So how did DNA help you with your identity? And since you mentioned the Phillips name, uh, help, me, uh, help us understand that connection. Well, one of the aspects of DNA testing, I mean, there's four, well, there's three primary um, DNA tests. And well, we, can go beyond, you, we can go beyond the, the, the types of tests. Tell us what, what happened. How did it confirm uh, what you were looking for? Well, through the autosomal test, I found relatives that had the Phillips last name. There was, mul- there was multiple hits of relatives oh. who had the Phillips last name. So okay. that really began to, 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 to confirm and to solidify what I had heard from the oral mm-hmm. history. One okay. match in particular, one match in particular, his last name was Harris, but he, has, uh, he explained to me that when he took the test with Family Tree, he did a, um, he did a, a STRY DNA test with family tree DNA, and it confirmed that he was actually descendant of Phillips. So as we talked, he became interested in my story, and he found this article which really set me off on a whole nother trend because I really had no way of identifying where that Phillips plantation was. I, I, I pursued different avenues, but I, I was running up against a brick wall. And this article helped me break through that. This relative match said, check this article out. There's this couple who was just featured in the paper a couple of years ago because they live on the original Phillips plantation. We, oh, your great-grandfather was, was born. And that from was that, wonderful. Wow. Wasn't that? Yeah, and I tell you, I actually had a chance to, when I read the, um, the article, uh, there was uh, a contact information, and I was able to contact the, the couple who live in that plantation house. And in talking to the owner, I found out that the house came with uh, this book called Travelers from Life to Death, Links in Some South Carolina Chains by Nancy Phillips. And she married a Norris, so her last name became Norris. But she had written this book in the early 60s. And that book conveyed the name of the original plantation owner whose name was David Vastine Phillips. And this book was in that house of some this new owners. They the were house. not okay. Original. Right. They were not original. Oh. They, 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 they moved from Hawaii. Well, at least the, uh, the wife had moved from Hawaii. The husband was a native of South Carolina. And 
ironically, the wife is a genealogist. So that was really interesting because I said, hey, I said, you know, uh, Mrs. Lackey, um, I said, you know, I, I read your article, and apparently, you know, when you were gardening, you found this Confederate, uh, un- Confederate iron cross in your backyard, and you were featured in the, in the local paper down in Springfield, South Carolina. And, you know, I just was so fascinated. And she said, yeah, you know, I'm finding all kind of stuff on this property because I guess this was a, a, a plantation or something, you know, after the, um, the historians broke it down to me because she had no clue what she was sitting on. Oh, wow. She had no clue. She said, this house came with all these books, and, and I don't know what this, I mean, evidently it, it means something, but I'm trying to run for mayor. You know, so, she, so she's just a genealogy, you know, uh, you know, as a part-time, you know, but she's in her profession is in the political arena, but she, she's surrounded by all this history and wasn't too sure how it all came together. But here I come. I called and I said, listen, in my family, I was, it was told to me that my great-great-grandfather was born on the Phillips Plantation, and I'm preparing to come down to South Carolina, and I'd love to meet you. And she said, sure. When you get here, ring me up. Okay. And I did. Mm-hmm. And, I did. and I did. And, uh, oh, gosh, it was so beautiful. I mean, the house was surrounded by these uh, – she had planted the this tea olive, which is a very fragrant uh, uh, plant, and the house itself was just so majestic. It was white and had this great big old wraparound veranda porch, and on the on the steps there was a name that was engraved into the blue colored steps, and it was the great great granddaughter of David Vastine Phillips. Her, the name was in the steps? It was in the Is that the what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. The great-great-granddaughter of the original Phillips plantation owner was engraved because the house had been passed down to her back in the 1930s. Wow. <laughs> Do you so feel this, like some kind of divine intervention here? I mean, you take a DNA <laughs> test. Well, you have this family lore. You take a DNA test. You match with yes. somebody who tells you about an article. You end up at the house? Yes, at the house. I'm telling you, I, I, I had to pinch myself. I'm like, is this really happening? But it was, and it gets better because she says, come on in. You want a tour? I'll give you the tour. She and her husband made it a point to try to retain the original character of the house. Now, there was a fire in 1908, she said, but it, it had been rebuilt. But a lot of the, um, a lot of the architecture, you know, was, was okay. It remained perfectly intact. But um, the stairwell, she said the stairwell is definitely original. And the power of, I mean, you, you, I know recently there was a movie called 12 Years a Slave. Yes. And that movie tore me up. That movie tore me up. And when they were in that plantation house, oh, my gosh, it brought back memories. It brought back memories of me being in that house 
and Mrs. Lackey giving me the tour and, and her pointing to this, this massive step that had to have had at least 60 steps going straight up. And at least, I would say, mm, maybe 36, 48 inches wide. So do you Are think there? that your ancestor walked the floors of that house? You know what? I think that is not unreasonable to imagine that he did because in the census he was listed as a mulatto, a mulatto. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a whole history with, you know, mulatto slaves and what have you. And it's, it's, it was so profound because when I went down to South Carolina, I had some cousins with me. And we all, you know, have our, our, the same history. We share the same four parents. And the oldest one in, out of the three of us that were there was 74 years old, mm-hmm. and she, I mean, we all looked at each other, and we were like, this is incredible. It took you to come down here to show us where it all started. Yes. Because, because not far from that house, there was a, 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 the train tracks ran right through that area of Springfield, and you could see what looked like a warehouse where they auctioned the slaves. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing but plantation houses all around. Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Lackey's house is one of them, which happened to be the original Phillips Plantation, where it all so, started. So what was the most significant encounters you had while you were visiting the the areas where much of your family history derived from? Well, the most significant encounter that I had was when I had the chance to go to the family church. I encourage, you know, folks to really take time to go to the churches where your ancestors attended, at least those that are still a standing because Hickory Hill Baptist Church was um, spoken of often when I spoke to Uncle, you know, cousin uh, Sam Kirkland and and all the elders before they had passed on. And Hickory Hill, because my great great grandfather was a deacon in that church, and guess what? The entire Baker family line, in laws, everybody who married him, everybody is buried in a straight line. So I see I saw my great great grandfather's tombstone, his parents, his parents' parents, all the way up. And then I got wow. the centerpiece, there's this huge, great big old tombstone that just says Bakers. It's a solid, and this is information solid. you knew nothing about. Knew nothing about. By law I had no right to know this information. By law. But it took a $5 calling card to make the difference and a DNA test that connected me to a relative match who provided an article that assisted me in my journey down to South Carolina to walk a half a mile in my post-antebellum family history and pre-Civil War history. 
So what you know? What about your newfound relatives? What do they say about how deeply you have been able to make this family history or take this family history to the next level? What what's what's being said here? Well, what's in the works is a major family reunion, and I've already been inducted. I mean, we sat down after we done had some fried chicken livers at Country Boys Barbecue. You know, <laughs> I, I, I can recall getting a bucket of, you know, your fried chicken livers, and we sit there laughing and talking, drinking some sweet tea, because, you know, we had to make a stop at Piggly Wiggly, you know, <laughs> to cap it off, you know. And um, and they said, Michael, Michael, we know that, you know, we're trying to plan this family reunion. You're already inducted, so you in, you in the crew. I said, okay, and we're going to try and we're going we're going to pull off the family reunion in 2015, and it's going to be a remake. It's going to be a remake of the original uh, family reunion that was started in 1972. There was an article there was an article that the family was featured in that talked about the four family lines, the Kirkland, the Hart, the Baker, and the Brown family reunion. It was over 200 members that came from near and far. This is four years, wait a minute, this is about five to six years before Roots. I just want you all to know that. 19, there were black families putting on reunions. Yes. But that day, that day, that particular reunion in, in Nisi, South Carolina, was unheard of. And it, it was newsworthy to the reporter because they had fireworks, yes. they had a big, they, and we had the family reunion at Grandpa Baker's homestead, the original homestead where every last one of those family lines can trace their roots back to that house and beyond to the Phillips Plantation. And what county was that article in, in South Carolina? Orangeburg. Orangeburg, Orangeburg, South county. Carolina. Mm-hmm. Orangeburg County, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, take us to the, now do you you've you've gotten you you're kind of on this 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 path. Do you ever plan to travel to the motherland? To complete your journey you know, of discovering your African uh, roots. You know what? Uh, I am pleased to share with you uh, tonight that I, when I was 21 years old, I had the amazing opportunity through Operation Crossroads Africa to travel and to, and to do Peace Corps uh, type of a work. And... Operation Crossroads is the progenitor of the Peace Corps, and it was uh, created by James Robinson. I believe he is an African-American who created that program, and it has an educational track to it. But I was there in Ghana living in the eastern region, which is where the Aquapian people of the Akan Society live. And I had a chance to, to stay with a host family and eat the traditional foods, and I learned how to play Awari. Awari there is like spades or bidwiz or, you know, yes. 500 rummies mm-hmm. to us on this side of the Atlantic. And I learned how to play it. A chief taught me, a Jassi Oheni chief taught me how to play Awari. And it's a, it's a game, you know, one of the things that really struck me was that 
you know, there's there's something to be said when, as a cultural people, we use the resources around us and build from scratch. Isn't that what Booker T. Washington and W. Dubois and, and all of those great thinkers, men and women who are great thinkers, they try to encourage us to use our head and to build from scratch. And this Owari game, it, it, it has a, an ancient history, really does, but it has been made available to the local community because it was at mm-hmm. one time available only to the royal class mm-hmm. and in ancient times. But now almost any and everybody, and that game has actually traveled throughout the diaspora. You could find versions of Owari in Jamaica. You could find it in Martinique. You can find it in Brazil. You can find it throughout the Americas. So this game, Owari, um, it's, it, it has so much significance, and it means he who marries. It means he who marries. In the Akan culture, it was a, a game that if in one sense, it was a game that if a, a man was interested in a woman, he married her to play that game for life. So it does have a, a romanticized element to it. Mm-hmm. But then there's a, a strategy component to it as well, which um, leads to a story um, with regards to King Sundiata Makita. He was, you know, the emperor of the Malian. He was one of the emperors of the Malian Empire. And um, he was known to be an avid player of Owari uh, in okay, his so, country. Is not something else, right? So let me just take you back for a second, and then we're going to to wrap up with the show. But what surprises? Since you brought up the DNA and you talked about your experience in Africa, what surprises did you discover about your overall ethnic ancestry? Well, you know, from your DNA about, testing. That's a really good question because I was not expecting to find North Africa all up and down, all the way around uh, on my uh, as a part of a, of a genetic uh, signal, you know, on these tests because North Africa actually appeared on my X chromosome, which means that it's coming straight from my maternal side. And right now I'm trying to figure out exactly which branch on my maternal side that North African could have originated from. There's strong historical events that I'm I'm reviewing right now um, pertain to South Carolina as well as North Carolina. And uh, right now it's mere speculation um, as far as how. Uh, that could have crept in. But, you know, when you look at, when you consider autosomal DNA testing, they're looking at ancestors from a range of about 300 to 500 years. So in my case, not only did I find North African, but I was surprised to find South Asian. So we've got India here, you know, creeping on, creeping in there, you know. So And that kind of makes sense, believe it or not. It really does because on the hearth side of the family, I know that there's a connection to Martinique, and French was all over the place, so that kind of solidifies that uh, oral tradition. But also the South Asian makes a little bit of sense because there were uh, South Indian immigrant workers uh, or migrant workers that were brought there 
um, to work the cocoa fields and what have you on Martinique uh, in the 1850s. So, so, so that's another possibility. Right. Yeah, so we have a there. question coming out of the chat. What about your paternal line? Now, with my paternal line, 23 of me was very instrumental in, in helping me understand how old my paternal line was and also um, the origins. And it's ironically, um, my paternal line originates from the Near East. I was very shocked. That was verified um, or echoed, I should say, when I tested with family tree DNA. Family tree DNA had to test me twice because I, I took a wide um, DNA STR analysis at 37 markers, and the customer service said, Mr. Williams, we, we, we are having a hard time figuring out what your, your paternal half group is because it's rare, and we don't have a whole lot of, you know, this particular half group in our database. So the final analysis was that I was, EM96, and when you research the phylogenetic history of that haplogroup, it does come out of the Near East. And so it's, it's okay. a subclad of the DE haplogroup, uh, which comes from the uh, Asia, Asia area, like Near Eastern area. So, and actually, in a lot of the autosomal, 23andMe picked up, like I said, the South Indian, they picked up the, the North African, Middle Eastern. You know they picked it. They picked it up, and they also picked up the Jewish, um, you know, elements as well, which inferred that there could be some some Jewish ancestry from that region as well. I even tested with uh, DNA tribes, and they picked up the same thing, same thing: North African, Near East, Ethiopia, you know, Jewish, everything. So take us to where we are now. What would you say to encourage someone who is faced with obstacles and stitching together their family history? I would say that you've got to be you've got to be focused, you've got to be dedicated to your journey, you've got to find out the strategies and uh, and employ those strategies. You need to incorporate the uh, methodologies used in traditional genealogy. You need to talk to uh, Big Mama. You need to talk to Big Papa, you know, and get those stories. You need to get those stories. And you need to be able to keep those stories in mind. And when you employ uh, DNA and other avenues, it will all come together. Everything comes together in time. So be patient with yourself. Rome wasn't built overnight, but it is possible to break through the barriers because the impossible reach can be made possible. It can be made possible. And how many relatives are you looking at right now? Let's just oh say just God. your DNA. Nine, almost about a thousand. About a thousand. Last I checked, like nine hundred ninety-eight. Right, but you mm-hmm. had that relative, that Phillips that relative, one. that really pointed you in the right direction. Although you right. had all that, you had all that other information. So yes. this is just this is this is beautiful. This is a wonderful story. And what are your parting words? My parting words is 
Know, in the words of Maya Angelou, know that you are the gift that your ancestors gave. You are the dream and the hope of that enslaved ancestor. Rise. Rise and continue to rise. Thank you so much. Rise. Thank you. Rise and you continue to rise. Thank you so much for sharing your discovery. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank well, you. Thank you. Happy to, holidays. Happy holiday. Well, everyone, I am going to have a show, a special show on Monday at 3 p.m. with retired attorney and genealogist and tour provider Sarah Cato. And she is going to discuss the 56 United States Colored Troops Recognition Program. Now, the St. Louis African American History and Genealogy Society spearheaded the recognition of the 56 United States Colored Troops. And an ad hoc committee right now is working to have memorial stones placed at the Jefferson Barracks National Cemetery. So please join me because this is a story for us to learn about, and I really want to encourage everyone to tune in at 3 o'clock on Monday. So good night, everyone, and thank you, Michael. And remember, your ancestors left footplate. Footprints. I mean, Michael has just shown us all of the footprints that his ancestors left. Therefore, you shall follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond uh, site. So thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Remember to listen to the African Root Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and uh, Wednesdays. This show is sponsored by... Bernice Bennett, BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Good night, and I look forward to you joining me next Monday. Good night, everyone. Good night, Michael. Hey.